as we've been making our way through Genesis and talking through um, just some, some challenging subjects, right? If you were with us last week, we, we talked about gender and sexuality, and this week we come to Genesis chapter 2 as we discuss the idea of marriage and why it's God's view that it's not good for man to be alone. Um, in coming to that, we're going to realize that we are wrestling with some views that our culture is going to say is outdated and too restrictive when they think about what the Bible has to say. Um, Sam Albury in his book, Does God Care Who I Sleep With, writes that our culture is constantly in that tension of wrestling, of saying that that there are there should be boundaries, right? I think all people, no matter of their views on sexuality, all of us, I think, understand that there are some boundaries that should be in place. And in fact, we have laws that, that regulate those things. Even though we've seen some of those laws changing in recent years in regards to marriage and some of those, we recognize that there's certain laws. So no matter who you are or where you come from, you probably have some view on the reality of some sexuality that is too restrictive, like or or, or, or that there should be healthy boundaries in place. And so the Bible comes today presenting to us these boundaries and saying, here's what they are and here's why they are. And this is important, again, as you think and you wrestle with things that your kiddos are facing, just like we talked about what last week, you may come to this issue and say, you know what, we're not really facing that and we pretty much line up with that. But I can promise you there are other issues in which your children and your own soul is wrestling with, do I understand and affirm what the Bible teaches or am I going to go along with the culture? So again, even if you come to this saying, I'm in alignment with what the Bible says here on marriage and these things, the reality is we're all in our families and our friends are going to face tension of whether or not they agree with the culture or what the Bible has to say on a multitude of issues. The question I think Moses poses for us, again, Moses is the writer of Genesis, is the question is, is the woman the only fit helper for the man? And if so, then what makes biblical marriage unique? Again, is the woman the only fit helper for the man? And if so, what makes biblical marriage unique? I think it's the question that Moses seems to be wrestling with here in chapter 2. Now, our culture is going to answer that question and says, well, a fit helper is whoever you think it is. Whether that's a man with a man or a woman with a woman, right? The, the, the views of, or maybe it's open marriage and, and these different things. Again, I realize the context here in the room, so I'm trying to be guarded in my verbiage, but the reality is we need to discuss these things. This is what the Bible is setting before. We need to address it. We need to realize that the Bible actually has something to say to our culture. That could be one of the dangers is we think the Bible's old and outdated and really doesn't have anything to say. Our culture has moved on past it. But the clarity from the scriptures over and over again is God has spoken. So we need to wrestle with why are we as a church or believers so quiet so often? And so we come to this today. Again, our, our culture might say adages like maybe you heard and why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? It's that view, right? That, that Man, guess what? If that's what feels good to you, I mean, the view is that basically that the opposite sex or however you deem that is just basically there for your own desires and end. And so whatever way in which you want to fulfill that, you just fulfill it however you want to pursue it. But the Bible comes back and Moses gives us a different picture that that's not God's design. And so today I want to set before you this big idea about biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is one biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship that ultimately points to Christ and the church. It's kind of a big sentence, but I want want you to, this is important, there's a lot of things to it. Biblical marriage is one biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship that ultimately points to Christ and the church. 
And that's what we're trying to see. Is that actually in Genesis? Is that here? Is that what Moses is saying? I pray by the power of the Spirit that we walk away saying, I see it. I see it's in God's Word. It's not just because that's what mom and dad believe. It's not just because I grew up in this small little religious town called Greensburg, Kentucky. Because if that happens, it won't take long either to middle school or you move on toward high school or college age. And you're going to hear all these other views of the culture. You're like, yeah, man, that's that little small, narrow-minded town I grew up in. That's what my parents thought. But if today, if here and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God speaks, and you say, you know what? My mom and dad held to those views, or maybe my grandma and grandpa held to those views, and I now do too, not just because they do, but because that's what God's Word says. That's our heart today. That's the desire. And if you see that, you realize how insurmountable that goal is in our flesh. So would you just desperately throughout this service just pray, God, would you speak? God, would you open our eyes? Would you give us the heart of Samuel to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So let's let's wrestle through it. Today, I think the first truth comes to us in the the opening verses of Genesis chapter 2. Is that we should notice that God's good design for marriage. We should notice that God has a good design for marriage. Now, if you remember, if you've been with us, Genesis chapter 1 is this big picture of the first six days of creation and all that's unfolding. But Genesis chapter 2 slows down and it zooms in. It kind of goes, hits rewind and jumps back into day 6 on the creation of man and woman. and says, well, there's a lot more than what happened of just what was described in Genesis 1. And that's what it's doing. It's pulling it out for you. It's zooming in so we can get a better view. Notice what happens here. The, the, the text picks up in verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There was no bush in the field and yet in, or was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain the land. And there was no man to work the ground. So there, there's, there's no plants. There's no yet, not yet been any rain. There's no man, no woman that's been created. That's where we are. So he's, again, he's rewinding the story for you. Notice what happens next. It says in verse 6, there was a mist going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Why? Because there hasn't been rain yet. That makes sense. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now God's created Adam. This was happening in verse 7. And the Lord God, listen to this. We begin to understand, well, where, where is he living and what's he doing there? Well, listen to what happens. He finds himself in this place called the Garden of Eden. Eden, the word for paradise, right? The word of, of luxury and pleasance. Pleasantry, right? Listen to what he says. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now listen to this. This kind of gives us a little bit of clarity of what's going to happen as we come to Genesis 3. So again, he's a good writer. Moses is packing so much in here. Look what he says. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. It's making just a passing comment. It's going to come to it again a little bit more here, but really preparing us for what's coming in chapter 3. Look what he says further again, identifying this Eden. It's, he says, a river flowed out of Eden to the water of the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So we have these four rivers. Okay, that's what he says. Then the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of the Havalah, Havalah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. You've probably heard of that one, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. My guess is most of you have probably heard, again, about the Tigris and the Euphrates. Well, 
Here's kind of this image here again. This is from the ESV study Bible, but kind of gives us some question marks because we know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. There's some thoughts of, well, maybe Eden is, is somewhere up here or maybe it's down here closer to the Persian Gulf. Again, scholars are, are not certain, right? But again, there's much discussion about where this actually is. But I think the bigger picture the Bible is giving for us is helping us not more in a location, but to help us understand the beauty of this place, of how God created and intended things to be. And if you're wondering, the good news is, right, I'll kind of fast forward and show my hand out, is that God has come to restore us back to this place. And in fact, we get a hint of that on the cross in Luke 23, when Jesus looks to the thief who's repented and believed, and he says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me where? In paradise. It's echoing the word of the words of Eden here. That imagery is full and rich, and he's saying, I'm going to restore. You see, things are not now as they should be, but they won't be like this forever. Christ has come to restore it. And so again, we have this imagery, imagery that's being, being shown, this, this, this beautiful picture of this Garden of Eden. And so look at the text. It continues by saying to us, here we'll pick up verse 15. So what's the man to do there? What well, says the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God created humanity to work. He created it. And so he says, listen, I, I just put the man there. That's his job to work. And so Again, it returns us back uh, to Genesis chapter 1 where the reality is man and woman were created as viceroys, right? And so that's in some sense like we're, viceroy is someone that's just simply in another place, right? Uh, uh, under the authority of a sovereign and they're exercising that authority on their behalf. It doesn't say that this world is ours, right? We're, we're not. We're, we're merely, as Jesus reminds us, we're merely tenants here. Right? I mean, I, I know it may have been in your family for generations and you've owned that land and that land. But I tell you, the truth is, it's all ultimately God's. We're all merely tenants here. And that's this reminder. But he says, listen, we are there just to, uh, just to work and, and, and to glorify God. And so look what he says, verse 16. It's further clarifying. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, for the first time, it's a reminder that the man that maybe we needed some clarity because we might miss it, that we are not autonomous, that we are not here to live any way we want. It's not willy nilly and however you want to live it up, whatever's right in your own eyes. God from the beginning is reminding us, I'm in control. I'm God. Your life is to be one in submission to me. But the good news is, guys, despite this, that we may think, oh, man, that's limiting. How couldn't God let them eat from that tree? What we see from Genesis chapter two is that doesn't break relationship between God and man. In other words, God's law is not evil or vindictive. Paul in the New Testament calls it holy, righteous, and good. It's our rebellion against God's word and God's law. And so again, the Bible presents God's word, God's law, God's truth as good and right and pleasing. But we'll come more to that in a few weeks as we, Lord willing, come into Genesis chapter 3. But what he unfolds in verse 18 is, is, is important and vital for us today. Listen to what he says. This is kind of the first moment we begin to see something shocking, something startling happens in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not what? It's not good that the man should be alone. This is the first time. Why? Because we've been hearing every single day, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And now this and if you remember back to Genesis chapter 1, maybe you're a little bit perplexed because Genesis 1, I think it's verse 31, that says, and after God created man and woman, it was very good. So how can God now in some way be retracting on what he's saying? Well, you've got to remember the context. 
at this point, Adam has been created, but who hasn't? Eve. So he's saying to us, listen, guys, the reminder is it's not just Adam that's very good. It's not just Eve that's very good. It's Adam and Eve that is very good. Notice something else that's major here. Look what it says. Verse 18 begins. Then the Lord God said. It's, it's God. This isn't Adam's idea. This is important. This isn't Adam's idea. He's not sitting around. And he's talking to God about things that are problems. No, it says the Lord God says God sees God notices The Bible is doing something important here. It's reminding us from this point forward, whatever happens is God's plan and God's design. Whatever takes place from this point forward, the Bible's saying whatever's going to take place in this relationship between this man and woman, it's clear. This is God's intent. This is God's design. This is God's purpose being unfolded. And it's God who looks and he realizes that it's not good. He realizes the man has a need. And he says, listen, I, I'm going to come and God's going to come and intend to, to meet that need. And I think it says something to us about our needs. That God doesn't just simply, rec- he, he does recognize them before we do. And we see in Genesis chapter 2 that it's God's plan to meet those needs ultimately for our good and for his glory. So whatever you're facing today, whatever you're going through, you can know the truth of Ephesians 1 and 3. That we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's nothing that you are lacking to live a life that exalts Christ and, 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 and points others to him. It's the good news of the gospel. And as we look at this truth, right again, it's a reminder that no good thing, Psalm 84 and 11 says, no good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly, whose life is one of righteousness. Saying that God sees, church, God sees your needs today. He knows them better than you do. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray and ask God, right, for our needs. We're we're to worry about nothing and pray about what? Everything. But the good news is God sees and knows. And I think it's just this beautiful, hopeful, encouraging moment that God is there and he's present. But this brings us to our second truth. It's, It's this thing that I think that stands out from the text that we should notice that God provides a helper. God sees the need. He sees the issue of the man. And now God steps in and provides the help. Look what it says, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And so what will God do about that? Notice what God says. God, he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now what's God see that Adam needs? A helper. Now, before any man in here puffs out his chest and be like, that's right. It's actually an attack on man's narcissistic rule it's a reminder that guess what we are not good alone it's a reminder to all of us it says that guess what the answer isn't look within men but look to god look to how he has created and designed us and others and the truth is is we're going to see that that eve isn't less than adam she's this 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 helper that's going to be formed and shaped in fact from him but again, some of us hear this text and we hear that statement and I will make, well, why does he say a helper? Well, I think maybe it's important to realize how the word helper is used in the Old Testament. Outside of Genesis chapter 2, the next time that this word helper is used is all the way in Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. And in Exodus 18, verse 4, Moses is there talking about his son named Eleazar. And that word means God is my what? Help. The Bible says that the next time this word helper is used, it's used to define God. 
And Moses is naming his son Eleazar in a reminder that God was the one who delivered his people out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage and slavery. Therefore, when we hear this word helper so often used throughout the Old Testament, right? Throughout the Psalms when they say that the Lord is my ever-present help in time of need. It's, it's using this word, this refrain about God being our helper. So when we come to Genesis chapter 2, it doesn't make sense that we should immediately read it here in Genesis and assume it's some demeaning term or used in a way to indicate that women are somehow less than men. In fact, it's an endearing way of saying that woman is what man needs. God is creating woman and that is good. And the women of the church said, amen, right? You see, I think that's one thing that's been important, right? Throughout history, there's been so much oppression of women. And what you see is is that Christianity, as it rises up, there's an acknowledgement that these are fellow image bearers. And so therefore, it's been the church throughout history that's been rising up and fought for women's rights. Now, listen, at times, have they got that wrong? Absolutely. But more than other religions and other philanthropists and groups, it is the church that has been there saying, these are our fellow image bearers. God created them and made them, and it's good. What's interesting that happens now in verse 19 and 20. Thanks, brother. What's interesting that happens in verse 19 and 20 is it's in some way a repeat back to chapter 1, which it it seems like, Moses, why are you repeating yourself? Well, Moses is repeating himself for for an important reason. And if the screen doesn't work again, I want to encourage you just to grab your Bible and and just to be following along. But look what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. It says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was no found, not found a helper fit for him. Is it back up? Yeah. So look what happens here. It's an interesting moment, right? Again, Moses is taking us back to chapter 1 and saying, well, I, hey, I already heard about the fact that all these creatures were coming to Adam and he was naming everyone. Why is Moses repeating this? Moses is repeating this because it's a reminder that Adam needed to be alerted to the fact that, guess what? He had a need. And he had a need and none of these other creatures, right? Men, as much as you may love your dog or a lady, as much as you love, may love your dog, listen, it's not a fit helper. It's, it's not. And so the Bible is using this moment to, to show us that Adam has all these other creatures, all these amazing things that God's created, but verse 20 there again comes, and it says just simply this, that there was not found a helper fit for him. He's helping Adam see, listen, none of these other creatures will do. You need to look to God. You need to look to God's design. And some of you, again, you're in that area. You're looking and pursuing happiness and joy outside of what God created it to be between one biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship. And it'll never work. But the good news is that, guys, that God just doesn't expose Adam's need. He actually provides it. Consider that again. God just doesn't expose his need. He provides it. And guess what? God, by his grace, he shows us our sin. That's uncomfortable. But God doesn't just expose it. He actually provides for it in a Savior. Amen? It's this picture that's happening here in Genesis of saying, guess what? There is one who's going to come, who's going to restore and make things right. So look what happens in the text. Verse 21 and 22, this marriage ceremony unfolding. 
in the creation of the woman. Verse 21 reads, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. The first surgery, as we mentioned last week, is taking place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, I think some important things that are happening here, I just want to point out two of them. One is the way in which the woman is like the man. Notice if you would back there. The Lord causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with the flesh. And the rib, so this rib that God had taken from him, notice what he does. He takes it and he makes it into a woman. So it's a reminder that she's like him in the sense that, guess what? She's literally taken from him. But we also notice that she's unlike him. Because back in verse 7, how was the man formed? Do you remember? From the what? From the dust of the earth, the dust of the ground. This is different. It's a reminder to say to us that this woman, yes, she is like the man, but she's also unlike the man. And maybe there's some sense in which her being taken from him and not formed from the ground is a reminder to him that, guess what? She's not like your doormat. I'm not necessarily sure all that Moses is doing here, but it does allude to the fact that she is like him, but also unlike him. That the woman has equal value and worth. Again, this is huge, important for so many societies and cultures throughout history have not seen women that way. The Bible has a completely different view. And as we look at this, guys, what we see with our culture is they're taking this moment, this masterpiece of God. and like, you know what, God, I see what you're doing there. But you know what? I really think it would look better arranged like this. And if we put this person with this person and if this person has these desires, they could be like that. And this would actually look better. Can you imagine? Ladies, can you imagine a day that somebody other somebody else walks into your house and begins rearranging everything, telling you how terrible it looks and who could have ever designed it this way? Be like, that's rude. It's disrespectful. I mean, against God. I mean, can you imagine? That's what our culture's done. Taking God's masterpiece and we're trying to rearrange it to make it look like we want to look. That has always and will always have disastrous consequences. I think a couple of applications just from this point that are very important. First, notice that God creates only one woman. There's only one Eve. Therefore, we are not polygamist. Right? We think it's one biological man for one biological woman in a covenant relationship that ultimately points to Christ in the church. So it's a reminder to us that, guess what? We enter into covenant relationships between one man and one woman. That's what we're doing here. And so, again, we reject it. And, and guess what? Just because we see it throughout the Old Testament doesn't mean that that's the way that God intended it. It's a distortion of God's original plan and design. Secondly, I think another truth that has to stand out from this is that God didn't make another Adam. He made Eve. Therefore, we reject homosexuality. Why? Because that's not God's original design. Secondly, homosexuality cannot fulfill God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth with the image bearers of God. It won't. It doesn't work. Men and women physically are compatible. It works. Third, we reject homosexuality. Why? Because what well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And out of love for them, we want them to enter the kingdom. And so we're willing to speak the truth in love. We talked about that last week with compassion, but also conviction. Third, I think it's a reminder that scholars note that the Christian view of sex seeks to the good of both spouses, not just the men. And again, I've alluded to it already, but man, this has done so much for rights of, of, of the minorities and the weak and the least of realizing that all people are image bearers. All of us are image bearers. 
And so again, those who are marginalized and looked down upon, it's a reminder that all are created in God's image. So so much is flowing here in the midst of Genesis chapter 2. So the question might be is what will Adam's reaction to this be? And will it affirm that biblical marriage is actually one biological man and one biological woman for our good? Well, I think it brings us this third truth. Notice God's intent for marriage. Look at God's intent for marriage here in verses 22 to 25. Notice how it finishes. Um, it says that the rib the Lord God had taken, verse 22, from the man, he made into a woman. And notice what God does. This is interesting. He brought her to the man. Now think about that. So often, what do you see happen in a marriage ceremony? A father's walking his daughter, right? Or maybe some representative of her family, depending on maybe the relationship with the father, or maybe he's passed, walking her down the aisle. And he's handing her off to that man. What, it's, it's a reenactment, right? It's, it's a reminder of what happened in Genesis. It's God who brought the woman to the man. That's what's unfolding. That's what's taking place here. It's God, right? So again, as we do that in our marriage ceremonies, it's a reminder we're following the pattern that God set before us. It's not just this cool symbol or cool moment. It's, it's symbolic. It's rich with imagery. And notice what the man says, verse 23. Then the man said, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Have you ever been in a moment like maybe you were at an airport or maybe it's like around the holidays and, and you, you're, you're, you're there waiting for someone? Right? Can you imagine like that? You felt that intensity as you're waiting in the airport and you see all the other people in baggage claim and you're looking, 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 and finally you're like, oh, there they are. They're here. That's, that's them. Or like you're waiting for that family member to come home for Thanksgiving or Christmas and like you've been out looking, watching, waiting. You're finally like, they made it. They made it. They're here. They're here. They're pulling in. That's some way in which this reminder, this statement, look what he says here. Then the man said, this at last. Finally. Nobody else would do. But what God has done here, man, this is good. At last. There's joy. Can you imagine the joy of this man seeing this woman who is like him? Right? And the fact that she's distinct from all the other creatures that God's made, and yet she's also not like him in a perfect way as well. And so the man says this at last. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Again, he's just affirming that truth. She is like me, but unlike me, this, this is fine. God, what you provided is good. Do we see it? The biblical marriage is good, church. What God has done here in Genesis is good. Notice what it says. He says that she shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Now, the Hebrew, if you have a study Bible, you're probably going to see some little notes there. But again, the word for woman in the Hebrew, right, they have, it's just the man, word for man, it's just added to a feminine ending to the end of it. It's as we might think in our culture, prince or princess, right? You think about that. So again, there's this reminder that they're similar, but they're still different. That's part of what's happening with this word woman. But what's the result of this relationship? Look what he says, verse 24. Therefore, so in response to what God has done, right, here's, here's the response. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, before we hear this and just assume that this, just like everything else, is old and outdated, let us not forget that it was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 19, when discussing marriage and divorce, he didn't look to the culture around him. What he did was he returned back to Genesis and began quoting these very words. And then that's when he says, Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
he's returning back to Genesis saying, listen, Jesus reminds us all, don't get your cues on what a relationship should look like by listening and looking to the culture. Return back to God's original design. Church, that's why we're here in Genesis 2. That's why we're spending time this morning. That's why we're wrestling with texts that may be uncomfortable or unpopular. Because this is God's good design and we need to hear it and see it from the Word of God itself. In Israel, during this time, right, as Moses writes that the, the, the parents, right, would, would have land and, and as time would unfold throughout the book, uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament, as they inherited the promised land, and the, the land would be passed down from father to father. And so the son would, would, would move out from his parents, but live under, on his parents' land. Why? Because at some point he would inherit the father's land. Well, that's what's happening here. But the reminder is, listen, it says, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. For some of you today, leaving your parents can be hard. But it reminds us that our marriages are to be our priorities. To some mom and dads here, we need to hear this and realize it's God's design for our children to leave as they are married. It's God's design. That's what he's, he's talking to us here about. But notice what he says. This statement here in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and do what? Hold fast to his wife, right? And some of you may be the older verbiage, right? You heard that statement of leave and cleave right that's that's what's happening here but the word hold fast it's it's a wordage that's used throughout the old testament indicating a covenant a covenant is a relationship where two parties come together and there's an agreement that something's going to happen based upon these commitments or vows to one another and throughout the bible we see these different covenants god's making with man till it finally comes to the new covenant that god has promised there through the blood of jesus christ but for those who are married here today, or maybe you've been to a marriage ceremony, you've probably heard those vows, those covenant terms being made, right? You, you probably remember it. For better or for what? Worse. For richer or for? In sickness or in? Until death do us. That's covenant terminology. Those aren't idle words. Those are words that aching back to Genesis 2, calling us to hold fast. So I want to compel you because I realize at this point, right, there are some of you in really hard marriages and relationships. I want to compel you, not because your spouse deserves it, but because I want to compel you because this is God's design. I want you to hold fast. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you should stay in a relationship in which you're being abused. Right? We're, we're not, or there's, there's ongoing, unrepentant sexual immorality. We're not saying those things. That there, there's some factors right and so brother todd and i would love to meet and walk beside you through that but beloved we hold fast in our marriages and our relationships not because i guess what our spouse has done enough to earn or deserve that no because we are ourselves holding fast to christ i'm going to come to our last point in just a moment but guys listen notice what happens here it says and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed we finally see that in a marriage, a biblical marriage, between one man, one biological man, and one biological woman, right? It's crazy we have to say that, but we do. In a covenant relationship that ultimately points to Christ and the church. Listen, in that relationship, that is the place in which we can be both naked and not ashamed. That's what the Bible says. So it's a reminder to us. We talked about it earlier about these boundaries and things. Guess what, guys? That's why the Bible sets before us there's boundaries, on relationships, and therefore it's not okay for adults to engage with children or 
It's not okay for two men or two women to be together. Why? Because it's one man and one woman. It says it's a husband and a wife. This means it's not okay to sleep around with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whomever you meet or hook up with. It's not okay to sleep with someone that isn't your spouse. It's not okay for us to pursue pornography in these other areas. Guys, the Bible is warning us. Guess what? We assume that we're merely biologically just this flesh matter. We're not. The Bible presents us as whole people. Body, soul, mind. So when we do those things, Paul warns. He says, do you not know that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, beloved? We can't do these things and think there won't be consequences. The Bible has set these boundaries for our good. And beloved, we've got to believe that. It's for our good to take place in the bonds of a covenant marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. My guess is that all of us in this room are married, have had bad times in our marriage. And we've struggled to feel as fulfilled as we had hoped to be. And I think this final and closing truth comes to us from Ephesians chapter 5. And it says this. Notice that marriage ultimately points to Christ and the church. Marriage ultimately points to Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul is speaking about marriage. And he's talking to wives in their role and husbands in their role. Uh, you, you can pick up and read some of that. But I, I want to pick up for you in verse 31. Because Paul makes... Or let's pick up verse 30. How about this? He says, because we are members of his body. And so he's talking about how we should love one another and cherish one another. Listen to what he says, though, in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's Paul doing? He's quoting our passage today, isn't he? And then he makes this complete paradigm shift statement. This is huge. Listen to this. Absolutely. It's mind-boggling. Look what he says in verse 32. Following this quotation of Genesis 2, listen to what Paul says. Ephesians 5, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to what? Christ and to the church. Paul says, listen, as you look at husbands and wives, this is what's so major about our marriages, is that they ultimately point beyond ourselves to Christ and the church. It's revealed something greater. Wives, that means that as Paul says here, you represent the church. So therefore, this call to submit, why? Because it reflects how the church submits to Christ. It's this beautiful love, but guess what? Husbands, who you represent, you represent Christ. And how does Christ love his bride? By giving himself up for her. By laying down his life, it's a self-sacrificing love that points everyone to the true image of Christ and the church. You see, this is why our marriages are so important. They're so beautiful and so glorious because they point beyond just this husband and wife right here in that moment. They look ultimately to Christ and the church for those of us who are in Christ. This compels us and reminds us why our marriages were created to never be separated. Why? Because we can't imagine the love of Christ and the church being separate. But the truth is we live in a broken world, beloved. And the good news, maybe you've struggled in that area and that's a reminder to you. Man, hold fast to Christ. He came to restore us from our brokenness. To those of you, again, who are struggling in your marriage, man, with all that is in me, I want to urge you and let you see the truth that your marriage points to Christ and the church. Hold fast. As I close this morning, I want to maybe address three different groups. First, to those of you who are single in this room. You may hear this and think, bro, uh, uh, dude, I'm not sure how much of that message was really for me. 
Have you forgot about us, that we're here? No. No. God sees you. God knows you're here. It's a reminder of the truth of Matthew 6 and 33, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to us as well. So what's that mean for you who are single? It means seek Christ, exalt him, trust in him, and know that, guess what, if it's the Lord's will, you'll bring that other person into your life. You can trust in that, but your call is to seek Christ. Notice, remember back to our 1 Corinthians 7 text that we read in our time of confession. Paul talks about singleness as a gift. He says some of us have been given a gift. And I had a brother give me some wise counsel the other day as we discussed a little bit of this. How do I know if I have the gift of singleness? How are you doing with lust? It's a real, it's a clarifying moment, right? Of Has God given me the gift of singleness? Why? Because Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 7 there in that statement, he says it's better to marry than to burn with passion or desire. So there's a sense in which those God who gives this gift of singleness, that passion or desire doesn't mean they don't have any, but it's, it's containable. For those of you who finally just, man, just find yourself just urged and driven by this passion and desire, it's likely means that you don't have the gift of singleness. But again, that's a thing to pray through and consider and work through. But I want to remind our singles here today that guess what? Being single does not mean that you're less complete or less important or less part of the body of Christ. I want to remind the married couples here, if you think that Jerry Maguire and that sweet, cushy moment of you complete me, that's idolatry. If you're looking to your spouse to complete you, they will never, ever satisfy. There's only one that completes any of us, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the good news is whether you're single or married, listen, look to Christ, love him, and you'll find yourself loving your spouse or loving those around you, and you may find that God brings that person into your life. So again, I I wanted to make sure our singles here seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you as well. And let our married couples do the same. Maybe you're here, a second group of folks who are not believers in Christ. I wonder today, have you seen the beauty of Christ revealed through a beautiful marriage of a husband and a wife? Maybe it was your grandparents or someone that you knew and man, just the way that they loved each other. You're like, ah. It's a reminder of Christ's love for the church. Of the church's love and submission and joy in Christ. But think about this, guys. This love that Christ has for the church. Christ didn't love his bride because she meets his needs. Christ didn't love us because we were so faithful and pure and beautiful that he couldn't resist us. No, we were chasing other relationships. That's, that's what the Bible says about us. It says that we're pursuing all these other places. We're covered in sin and shame, all of us. And yet, what the Bible says, that even in the midst of our sin, Christ dies for us. It's His love that awakens us from drinking of that slop of sin with affairs and sexual morality, pornography, homosexuality, and the list goes on. It's Christ's death in our place that says to every single marriage, there is forgiveness and redemption. There's hope to the unbeliever and the believer alike. And it's in Christ. And that victory comes on that third day, on a Sunday morning. That's why we gather this morning, on a Sunday. It's a declaration that our God has defeated our sin and he's defeated our greatest enemy in death. And it's a declaration that there's hope to everyone here today. Single, married, believer, unbeliever. But unbeliever, I compel you, run to Christ. Experience his forgiveness and grace to the church. It is my hope and prayer today that you walk away saying, you know what, biblical marriage because of what God's word says is one biological man and one biological woman 
in a covenant relationship that ultimately points to Christ and the church. I pray you walk away convinced of that. Because guess what? From Genesis 2 to Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bible is rich with this imagery of marriage and what God is doing to restore us back to Himself. I mentioned Sam Albury in his book, Does God Care Who I Sleep With? He writes these words that I want to close with. He says, sexuality and marriage are really about self-giving. The focus for any spouse is to be like Christ, aimed at accomplishing the good of the other. The Christian sexual ethic is fundamentally shaped by this reality. The husband or the wife aren't ends in themselves, given only for their pleasure and whims. They are God's image bearers to cherish. For Christian spouses, they are for one another opportunities to love God by loving our closest neighbor, our neighbor that we are the most intimate and expose ourselves unto. That is what biblical marriage is. For Christians, marriage is about giving their lives for the good of another. That's what we're created to do, guys. That's biblical marriage. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's go live it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Christ and what you've created here in Genesis, Lord. This was your purpose, your design. And Lord, we just want to say thank you for it. That this, after you created man and woman and you designed marriage, you didn't simply say it was good, but very good. Lord, we just want to, again, thank you and praise you for your good plan. And we acknowledge, even this moment, Lord, that we've distorted it. We've pursued other relationships and other paths. But God, thank you. That's why we have Christ today. That we have hope. That all of us, Lord God, can run to him as, Lord, the truth, the hope, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for redeeming my own soul, Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who have been redeemed in this place. Oh, how we love to proclaim it, Lord. Your child and forever we are. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Thank you, God, for your beautiful plan for marriage. Thank you, Lord, that there's hope and there's promise and there's a good design. Lord, we pray for more grace to pursue it ourselves and more grace to talk to our family and our friends and others that we encounter about what you have created and designed. And God, give us conviction that we won't be ashamed and shrink back. And Lord, fill us with compassion that we will love our neighbor as ourselves. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.